You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Let's turn to God's word. Um, turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. That's where we'll be spending our time this morning as we approach the Christmas season, begin uh, preparing our hearts for that great celebration. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you um, or you don't have a Bible at all, there should be one in the pew right in front of you. We want you to grab that, uh, open it up, Luke chapter 1. Um, we want you to have God's word open in front of you. Uh, I come with nothing to say. Uh, I come with nothing of value except um, what God has said. And so we want to look together uh, at Scripture and, uh, um, and, and see God's word, not my word. Well, as you're flipping there, uh, I'll tell you a story. A story of a guy named Chris Gardner. He was born in the, in the 50s uh, into a poverty-stricken family with a violently abusive alcoholic father. Uh, he ended up bouncing around through foster care through his teen years. Uh, he married very young, but then had a child with another woman who was not his wife. And so that didn't go well. Uh, eventually found himself living on the streets, caring for his toddler son. Uh, they ate at soup kitchens. They slept in parks and shelters, uh, even train station bathrooms. Till one day, Chris is walking down the street, saw a man in a premium luxury suit getting out of a brand new bright red Ferrari. And on a whim, Chris asked him, what do you do? The man answered, stockbroker, and headed off into the skyscraper in front of him. Uh, that sent Chris on a mission. And for the next two months, he, he badgered and pried and pushed himself into meetings with all kinds of uh, managers of different brokerages around the city, eventually got himself into an internship, an unpaid internship, uh, which eventually turned into a job. And uh, today, Chris Gardner owns his own brokerage firm, is worth well over $60 million, and drives around in his own bright red Ferrari. Started off with nothing, beaten down, all but lost, ended up on top of the world, owns it all, wealthy, successful. We, we love these, these kind of rags to riches stories. Enough that made it into a, a movie. If you've seen The Pursuit of Happiness, um, that's a, a true story based on Chris Gardner's life. Um, but it feels good. We, we love to see that nothing to everything. And, uh, and, and today, Luke chapter 1, um, verses 26 to 35, uh, is, is the ultimate rags to riches story. This is, this is it. Um, Luke's account uh, of the, the announcement of Jesus. We talked last week, verses 25 to, to 31, or 26 to 31, we saw um, Jesus came from humble beginnings. The announcement of his birth was made to an insignificant young girl in Nazareth, this, this backwoods, nothing town. 
He was born in a barn, surrounded by animals. Um, And his humble beginning wasn't just a rough childhood. Like, it's not like it ended there. It continued on. He lived as this kind of nomadic, traveling teacher from place to place, having no steady income, never owning a home. He was not an impressive man by worldly standards. He was despised. He was rejected by society. The social elites, the religious ruling class, they they never accepted him. In fact, his life ended in absolute rejection. Rejected by the government, rejected by the religious leaders, rejected by the, the crowds that once followed him, the ones that shouted Hosanna as he came into Jerusalem, now shouted, crucify him. Even his dearest friends, his 12 disciples, fled, hid. Peter himself denied that he ever even knew Jesus. <coughs> Most significantly, as he was crucified, he was rejected by God himself. The sky went dark. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Rags to riches. And the, the rags portion of his story is deeper and darker and lower than, than any other story. No one descended to the depths to which he did. And yet from the very beginning, from before his birth, actually before his conception, at the announcement of his birth, it was made clear that, that rags would not be the end of the story. That would not be where this finishes. In fact, the astonishing depths of his humiliation would be, would be more than answered. In fact, infinitely answered, overshadowed by the glory of his exaltation that awaited. So as we look at uh, his humble beginnings from last week, this week we're going to look now at his, his glorious end. Verses 32 to 33 um, is going to be our focus this morning. Let me, let me start back in, in verse 26 just to give us the context. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now here's what we're going to look at this morning, 32. Uh, He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to be still and know that you are God this morning. Lord, would you reveal your glory to us in this text? Would you help us by your spirit? Lord, I pray that you would, um, that you would empower um, 
my words as I speak your word. God, that my words will be faithful to, uh, to what you have written, to what you have for us. God, would you, would you open our hearts? God, we confess we are often um, slow uh, of hearing, hard of heart. Lord, would you graciously open our eyes to see afresh your glorious truth, to stand amazed uh, at the wonder of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just looking at this passage, it, it has a very natural outline to it. Um, there's a, a main clause, the, the, the main piece of the sentence, he will be great. Thesis, title. And then there are these four subordinate clauses, each one starting with and or chi in the Greek, which can kind of and or even. Um, and and the, these, these phrases each kind of support that main statement. So he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So here's this building picture of the, the greatness of who this child would be. So we're just going to follow Gabriel's outline uh, this morning. Um, but first, let's look at this, this simple statement, this main point, he will be Great. Now we use that word great in all kinds of different contexts. Um, my wife is a great cook. I had a great time last night. Um, we have a great team this year. This is something a little more than that. This is bigger. Um, last week we saw a number of times the contrast between um, the, the announcement of John the Baptist happens just prior to this um, and, and then the announcement of Jesus. And, and there's, there's this kind of ongoing contrast. And and, and first, it was the, that there's kind of glory in the announcement of John the Baptist. There's some amazing things happening. Um, Zechariah and Elizabeth are said to be righteous and holy. It happens in the temple in Jerusalem. And, and, and the announcement of Jesus is downplayed. It's a, it's, a, it's a nobody, a virgin. We don't know her. It's this little town in the middle of Galilee. Um, but then that switches. And as we start to read about um, John the Baptist versus Jesus and who they will be, um, as that contrast continues, verse 15 um, says of John, he will be great before the Lord. So that's a big deal. He'll be great, but John's greatness is, is qualified. There's a context to it, right? He'll be great in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord will see him as great. And, and again, that's significant. But when it comes then to the announcement of Jesus, the, the simplicity of that statement is significant and, and dramatic. He will be great, period. No reference point, no context, no qualification, just plain and simple, he will be great. The, the fullest definition of that word. Um, it's reminiscent of the way the Psalms speak um, only of one person, and that is Yahweh. God himself. So Psalm 48.1, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Psalm 86.10, for you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. Psalm 145.3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. So Yahweh is great. And this child who would be born would be great. Here we move into the first and statement. The 
first kind of supporting uh, statement, the, the, the defining features of his greatness. What does he mean by that? And Gabriel's first point is, he will be the great God. Gabriel says he will be called Son of the Most High. So Most High there uh, is unambiguous. That, that is uh, the, the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew phrase El Elyon, um, God Most High. It's, it's Yahweh. He will be the Son of the Most High. And, and it says he'll be called that. Um, don't let that throw you off. The implication is he'll be called that because it's accurate. That's who he is, and it will be seen and become evident, and, and it will be recognized and declared. So again, as we, as we contrast with uh, John the Baptist, look ahead to verse 76. It says that John would be called a prophet of the Most High, a messenger, a mouthpiece from God. Again, that's significant. But Jesus would be the son of the Most High. That's, that's a, a qualitative difference, right? It's not quantitative. Jesus isn't further down the scale of greatness, this kind of sliding scale further down from John. Um, no, it, it's, it's a qualitative difference. He, he has a different quality. He's in a different category than John. Whole different ballgame. A prophet represents God in what he says. He carries the, the message of God. But a son, a son represents God in who he is because he has the very nature of God. And yes, we as believers are called sons of God, children of God. Um, we as new creations in Christ, we, we do reflect some small aspect of that in our own way, um, but, but we're adopted as sons. We're brought in. We, we carry that title in a very different way, and so um, it is still absolutely true, as John 3.16 says, that he is the only begotten son. He's the son of the most high in a, in a totally unique way, a way that makes it true what, what Matthew says, uh, Matthew one twenty three. behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Um, those parentheses there, which means God with us, we didn't, I didn't put that in, okay? Um, that's not some commentator, that's what Matthew wrote. Matthew wants us to realize uh, that Emmanuel means God with us. It, this is God here. The Son of God is with us. John 10 30, Jesus himself said very simply, I and the Father are one. This is the, the Trinity, complexity of, of, of one and three. As, as John 1, 1 says, the word became flesh, in the beginning, the word was with God and was God. He's both. And so God has come. Yahweh has come in the form of the Son. The Son most high. In the same nature of God himself. Colossians 2.9 puts it. In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That, that's intentionally redundant. He's kind of piling it on the, the whole fullness so yes, humble beginnings, but he will be great. This baby that was born in the manger that we celebrate at Christmas will be called the son of the most high. Um, Gabriel starts 
right at the mountaintop. I, I like to start small and build. Um, Gabriel just brings out the big guns right away. He's going to be great. How great? He's going to be God. He's going to be the almighty, the, the highest possible claim. And this claim, this, this reality, I, I mean, it, it inspires our worship. We've got to see this and just be, be overwhelmed, stand in awe. The, the God of the universe, the God that, that measures the stars, the universe, the span of his hand, the God that holds the, the ocean in the palm of his hand has come down to be with us, to walk amongst sinners. He will be the son of God. We ought to worship him. Stand in, in awe and wonder and, and amazement. Of course, we, we see that beginning at the first Christmas. He's worshipped by, by shepherds and joined by angels. The disciples, on a few different occasions, join in this worship. Um, most notably, I think, uh, after Jesus had walked on the water, Matthew 14 32, 33 says, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. They worshiped and it's the only proper response. Not, not, a, not a begrudging acknowledgement, not, not a cold calculated uh, agreement, but a passionate, amazed heart overflowing into, into worship. Do you see it? Do you, do you feel that as we approach Christmas, as we consider these truths again? The remembrance of this amazing miracle, uh, let, it, let it draw you to worship afresh. So yes, humble beginnings, but he is great. He's the son of the most high. We ought to worship him. And then secondly, Gabriel adds, not only is he the, the great son who inspires our worship, but he's also the great king who demands our submission. Second part of verse 32, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. So Jesus is the son of God by his, his divine essence, his eternal nature, but he's also at the same time in this this miraculous coming together of God and man uh, in the flesh. He's a, he's a descendant of David. Both Mary and Joseph are born of the line of David, but he isn't just a descendant of David. He is the descendant of David. David was Israel's greatest king. He was called by God a man after my own heart, and he ruled. He ruled well. He brought peace. He, he kind of established the nation of Israel in the promised land and, and, and led the people to, to serve the Lord. Second Samuel 7, um, God made this promise to David, verses 12 uh, to 13. He said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There's so much in that promise. We could, we could spend months unpacking that. For all of Israel, all of God's people are, are waiting. 
waiting for the fulfillment of this promise. When's this king coming who's going to be like David, but, but better? A king, a good king. One of, one of David's own descendants who's going who's gonna to take up David's throne and is going to rule like David forever. Well after David's death, as the people continue to wait and, and look and long and hope, um, Isaiah adds to this promise. The Lord adds to this promise through Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah 9, 6 to 7. Looking forward, he says, For to us a child is born. A son is given and the government shall be on his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's the kingdom of David. And he's, he's kind of building this promise. He's going to be more than just a son of David. He's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We see, again, the, the deity of Christ. And he isn't just going to reign over Israel. Oh, it's going to be more than that. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. No end. His rule will be supreme. And after centuries of waiting, now Gabriel is telling Mary, this child is going to be that king. It's coming. It's happening. It's here. The promised king. His kingdom will come. And, and, and Jesus brought in the kingdom of God, initiated it. It started small in, in seed form, but it continues to grow. Right now, his rule is invisible, intangible. He, he rules in and over us who trust him. But the day is coming. A day is coming when he returns and he brings his kingdom into its fullness. Philippians 2, 9 to 11 tells us, Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His kingdom with, with no ends. Everyone will kneel. Everyone will see it. Revelation 19 calls him the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He, he rules over every other ruler. Again, he may have started from humble beginnings, but in the end, his, his kingdom will be great. Not one person, human, angel, or demon, will escape his rule. But this Jesus, the great king, then commands us to submit. He demands that we bend the knee to him. It's not enough to simply be enamored by Jesus. He, he calls for our obedience. He calls us to be his subjects. Now, that's not what we expect from the, the baby lying in the manger lit by the soft glow of the moonlight. This makes us uncomfortable. We don't, we don't like to submit. We don't want to be ruled. We want to be rulers. We want to make our own decisions. But look again at his kingdom. Think about this. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He's going to rule with justice and with righteousness. His kingdom will be like none other the world has ever seen. The good and righteous King David, who ruled in peace in his day, was was merely a hint, a a shadow of of what what the Messiah would be when he came. It's it's like playing with a a miniature plastic model of of Buckingham Palace, right? You can kind of see the shape of it. Some of the colors are are right. You, you You can see it a little bit, but it's tiny and it's frail and it's plastic. But the real thing is massive. Every room has far more detail than the entire model itself. And instead of plastic, it's, it's stone and steel and gold and silver and fine fabrics. The kingdom of Jesus will mirror the kingdom of David, but so much greater. This is a rule that, that you want to be under. This is a kingdom that, that we want to have over us. It's glorious. It's good. And so he invites us, he welcomes us to to submit to his rule, to come under his authority. At the same time, he warns. Revelation 19, 15 speaks of him coming in the last day and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. In the end, when, when Jesus returns, ah, he will come in force. He, he will come with power. And the, the nations, that is to say, those who refuse to submit to his rule, those who, who continue to stand in their own autonomy and say, no, I will rule, they will be ruled with a rod of iron. They will be brought down and crushed. They will experience the wrath of the Almighty. They will be on the the wrong side of the God of of perfect justice and righteousness. In the end, the, the submission to this king is not optional. All who refuse will face eternal consequences. But peace and justice and and perfect utopia under this perfect king are are offered, promised to those who will submit. So this is the the great God. We ought to worship him. And this is the the great king. We ought to submit to him. We ought to come exciting and willingly subjecting ourselves to his rule. Then we see next that he is the great firstborn, come to him. Verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. So Gabriel announces to Mary, this child will reign over the house of Jacob. I wrestled with this. Firstborn is the right term biblically. Um, The problem is we don't get it. the firstborn son in a family in that day was an, was an honored position. It was a position of authority. That would be the, the right-hand man of the father. He would, he would rule over the household in many ways. And so 
thinking culturally, if I was, if I was just to adapt this entirely to our culture, I'd want to say he's the father. That's the role that he plays in, in our minds because that's the way we understand a family to work. Jesus is taking the, the role of the family. He, he loves, he cares for his family. He, he adopts into his family, but, but then we have problems down the road because he's not the father. Um, God the father is the father. He's the firstborn. And so we'll stick with the biblical picture, but you need to understand there's a little more here. We need to kind of adapt our thinking to the culture of Scripture. He's, he's the firstborn. And these words, he would reign over the house of Jacob. So he's talking about this, this family of Jacob, and, 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 and Jesus would be the, the ruler, the firstborn over the house of Jacob. It's another promise, a reference to another promise that God had made. Long before the promise of the kingdom of David was a promise of a house or the family of Jacob. To Jacob, God had made this promise back in Genesis 28, verse 13. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and in you, the off, in your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So again, numerous promises packed into this dense uh, few verses. There's a promise of land, a place they could settle and call home. They were a nomadic people at this point. They didn't own anything. He said, I will give you a home. There's a promise of offspring that the, the family of Jacob would, would multiply and, and grow and increase. And there's the, 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 the promise of blessing. Not just for the, the descendants of Jacob, God would bless his family, but his family would become a blessing then to, to all the earth, every other family. Jacob would be the father of a unique family, a family that God would bless and a family through whom God would bless the rest of the world. Jacob, then we know, is given a new name. He's called Israel. And so the family of Israel becomes the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel then moved into the land of Israel. And yet, so much of this promise remains unfulfilled. They did possess the land. They, they had relative peace for a few years under David and then Solomon. And, and then it just all fell apart like the wheels came off the wagon. It was a disaster. Ultimately, they lost it. The people of Israel are scattered all over the, the known world. They're off into captivity. The, the family of Jacob has been torn apart. By the time of Mary and Joseph, many of the Israelites had, had come back and they had, they had settled in the land of Israel, but they didn't own it. They were, they were almost foreigners in their own land. The, the Romans owned it, ruled over them. Was God's promise forsaken? No. Now the house of Jacob, the family of Israel would still be blessed. They would still be a blessing as God had promised. And that was going to happen through this child. He would be the great firstborn. He would, he would take rule over this family and fulfill these promises. 
He would be the new head of the family over the household of Jacob. And, and through him, God would deliver the blessings to Israel and to the world. Again, Isaiah, building on that, already hinted about how this would happen. Um, Isaiah was written in a, in a time when, just as the wheels were coming off, half of Israel had already been totally pillaged and people torn from their homes and scattered all over. The other half of Israel was, was just in the process of falling apart, verge of collapse. And looking forward to the Messiah, resting on these promises, Isaiah prophesies, the Lord speaking of the Messiah to come. He says, Isaiah 49, 6, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God is saying, I'm, I'm going to restore my people. I'm going to rescue them. They're, these promises are not left behind, but, but my promise to Jacob was more than that. It wouldn't be enough for the Messiah to come and just rescue Israel. My promise was to the world, and so my servant, the Messiah, he's going to be a light to the world, to the nations, to all the families of the earth. He's the, the firstborn of the house of Jacob, but, but the house of Jacob is about to be expanded. The doors are coming off. And that's exactly what Jesus would do. John 1, 11 and 12 says this of Jesus. He came to his own, speaking of Israel, his own people, the people to which he had been promised who were supposed to be waiting for him, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, brought into the family. He came and was rejected by the house of Jacob. And so he brought in the nations into the house of Jacob. All the families, all the nations of the earth. Physically speaking, um, circumcision was the, the mark of the, the family of, of Jacob. Um, actually going back to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. To be circumcised or to be part of the, the family of Israel, part of the family of, of God's blessing. That was the, the mark that they carried. After Jesus had come, after Jesus had, had taken this promise to its fulfillment, Paul explains to the, the Christians in Philippi, non-Jews, uncircumcised believers in Jesus, he says, Philippians 3.3, 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's, that's the new circumcision. It's the people of God. Not by a, not by a physical mark, not by physical birth, but, but by faith in Jesus. That's the new family. God's plan was never about the, the physical descendants of Jacob. It never ended there. There was a this physical family of God, the, the physical descendants of Jacob, the nation of Israel, this visible representation on earth of what it meant to be God's people, but the true family of God, the family of people that, that God would bless, to whom he would be absolutely faithful. It wasn't about the flesh. It wasn't about a physical ancestry. 
There were always these two different realities happening at the same time. There, there were those who were, who were physical Israelites. They were the genetic offspring of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And, and that was a large group of people. But within that was another group, another reality. Those who were the, the true Israel. Those who were the, the spiritual children of Jacob. Not just a physical sense. Not just by happening to be born of his family, but because they, like Abraham and like Jacob, trusted God. They were spiritual descendants. They were following after that ancestry spiritually. Those were always the true people of God. There was always the, the nation of Israel, this visible thing, and true Israel within that who actually trusted, actually followed. And not by not by inheriting physical traits from Jacob, but by being in his lineage of faith, having the, the same faith as him. And so we too become children of Abraham by faith. We, we become welcomed into this family. And that was, that was always open for outsiders, for the Gentiles. The nation of Israel was meant to be a, a, a missionary people, but under the old covenant, it was rare. Now, through Jesus, through the, the new and great firstborn over the house of Jacob, God would fulfill this promise far beyond what was expected. They always knew that the nation would be, sorry, that the, the nations of the world would be blessed through the family of Jacob, but, but it seems that they, they assumed that, they would, that the nations would just kind of be touched by the blessing. Right? Kind of, like, kind of like you're blessed by that rich uncle in the family. You, you get some of the, you know, your, your family vacations are a little bit cooler. Um, your Christmas presents are a little better. Um, when, when, you, when you go on vacation, you can go to their place and, 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 and play with their stuff. And so we're kind, of, we're kind of secondarily blessed by that blessed family. But that's not what God had in plan. It's so much more than that. He's saying that, that the people from every other nation will actually be brought into the fullness of this blessing. They will become part of the family, adopted into the wealth, made, made heirs in this family. That's the promise of the house of Jacob, that, that by faith, we become part of the family of God. So Jesus, as the great God, inspires our worship Jesus, as the great king, demands our submission. And then Jesus, as the great firstborn, it, it invites us to belong. He calls us to himself as this, as this loving fatherly role saying, come on in, accept my adoption. It welcomes us into the family. It says to the outsiders, it says to those who are far from God, who deserve nothing, who have not been part of the family, who are foreigners and strangers and outcasts and downtrodden, there is a place for you here. And we, like these grubby street urchin orphans, are adopted into the royal family. That's what this Jesus would accomplish. The great firstborn over this family who, who by grace calls the outcasts and the sinners to come in, to have belonging in him as part of this family. Do you know that belonging? 
Are you by faith in him part of that family? Are you still looking in from the outside? Why? The doors open, the invitation goes out, trust him, come in, into his blessing. To those of us who, who do trust him, I think so often we still squirm and doubt. We feel like our ongoing sin or our past as an outsider is going to exclude us from God's blessing, that God's going to change his mind, that we have to kind of continue to work to stay in his good graces. But Jesus, as the great firstborn, says, come in. Be adopted. Belong here. You're a child of God. You're part of the family. From rags to riches, this baby would one day prove to be the great God, the great king, the great firstborn, and finally, our eternal hope. Taking the throne of David was to fulfill this promise that that the increase of his government and of peace, there would be no end. The firstborn of the house of Jacob was to fulfill the, the promise of the land. As well, a place that the the people would find rest and security, peace. And so Gabriel adds on the end here, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. He's affirming. He's going to bring all of this into its final completion. He's going to bring it all together. This eternal hope, a king with an everlasting kingdom. Daniel 2.44, God's promise looking forward again. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Democracy, it seems to me, is kind of our best bet our best option to try to keep wicked rulers at bay. But that's about all it does. That's about the extent of it. It just slows down the progress of evil if we're lucky. And even that, it can only do so well and for so long. Anyone else a little weary of human government these days? Tired? of just kind of hoping evil will be postponed a little more, hoping the slide doesn't go too fast, that the advance will be slowed down. Listen, our hope can never be in the next election. Our hope can never be in in success or, or political agendas. Won't do it. It won't be enough. True peace will never come from earthly rulers. Don't expect it. Don't be shocked at this worldly system as it crumbles and falls into brokenness and corruption. Listen, the kingdom of man never served the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God has never been threatened by the kingdom of man. Not for a moment. We're not looking for a better democracy. We're not hoping that... that that North America turns itself around and and becomes some some great utopia. It's not going to happen. We shouldn't be surprised when it doesn't. 
Our hope in this world doesn't rise and fall on saving this broken system. Our focus should not be on scrambling and fighting to try to to patch up this sinking ship. We hope, we wait for a new kingdom, a better kingdom, a kingdom that will not be shaken, a kingdom that will come and will crush and destroy every earthly kingdom. And that eternal kingdom will be a kingdom of peace where the prince of peace rules in righteousness and justice. That'll be a good day. And in that kingdom, we find our promised land. We get so caught up watching the the modern politics and the news looking to see if if physical Israel is going to get physical peace in the physical land, and we miss the point. Physical Israel was rescued from the bonds of Egypt, was carried by God through the the wandering in the wilderness, was brought by his strength into the promised land of Canaan. Every enemy was pushed out and David reigned and prospered and there was peace in the land. But it was never about physical Israel. It It never was meant to end there. True Israel, his children, not by birth, but by faith, were always in view. Physical Israel was an object lesson teaching us, showing us how God would rescue his people from the bondage to sin and death and how he would care for them and carry them along through the wandering in this weary world and and how he would bring them safely into their eternal inheritance, the the promised land, which which is not some piece of dirt. It's the new heavens and the new earth. That's what it's about. Yes, I think there are many who are physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who are going to be included into that kingdom by God's grace. Not because they're physical descendants, but because they come to trust in Christ and become spiritual descendants of Abraham as we have. So we look forward, not to a chunk of land in a broken world, but to an eternal home an eternal home, the new heavens, the new earth. That's our promised land. That's that's what we're looking forward to. That's what we set our hope on. That's what this great God and King and firstborn has for those who will worship him and submit to him and come to him. And that ought to make us rejoice. You ever feel a bit homeless, a bit restless? And I know some of you do. I think we all do. Some are feeling that really strong right now. You ever feel like you just don't belong here? Like, like the greatest joys of this world just never quite cut it? I mean, every year we look forward to the perfect Christmas, right? And we try to get everything planned out. We try to make everything perfect. The, the family gathered together and celebrating and rejoicing and giving and receiving gifts and, and gorging on feasts of the best food and drink we can muster. And every year, doesn't it fall just a little short? There's tension in the family or memories of the family member who's not there anymore. You don't quite get that one thing you really wanted, or if you do, the moment you get it, it starts to break down or fall short. The satisfaction of the feast so quickly fades to a memory. 
Before we know it, the magic of Christmas is gone and we go back to working, struggling, striving, suffering in a broken world. There's a reason that that nostalgic dream of the perfect Christmas continues to come around and we continue to look for it and long for it. Those are good desires. Those are right desires. That's the right hope for peace and joy, for for family and and true belonging, for for feasting and celebrating, for, for true and lasting rest. The problem is not the desire, but that we attach it to the wrong things. We set it too low. We have those desires because that's what we were created for, but that itch was never meant to be scratched in this world. The best Christmas ever is just, just crumbs falling from the table of the feast that awaits us. Why would we try to be satisfied on the crumbs when glory awaits? The reality of the promised land to come, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where every enemy of sin and death and suffering and pain is completely wiped out. That's the day we look forward to. A land where we will feast in the presence of our Lord. There will be joy and rest without end. He is our eternal hope. Rejoice. Set your heart on that. And listen, it's good. It's good to rejoice in in every good gift of the Christmas season. But don't don't let your heart settle there. Let that be nothing more than a a reminder of what's to come. Every every good blessing is just just knowing, oh, there is more to come. Oh, this is just a, a hint of what the Lord has in store. And then every discouragement, every loss, every sense of homelessness, misplaced, suffering, every trial, every disappointment and frustration, that's an equal reminder. Reminder that this is not our home, that we don't belong here, that there is a glory ahead that is free from all of these things. The perfect, eternal kingdom of God, the home that awaits us on that day. On that day, we will sing out Revelation 11, 15. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That is the eternal hope to which Christmas points. That is the the child from humble beginnings who will eventually bring all of us who trust in him, who, who worship him, who submit to him, who hope in him to this glorious 